Welcome to Breaking the Bias. This podcast is designed as a collection of conversations with sales and marketing leaders from across our industry, shining a light and sharing stories of workplace empowerment. Welcome to this first episode of Breaking the Bias, hosted by me, Alicia Linden, CEO of Momentum. In celebration of International Women's Day this year, I'm joined by three industry leaders to talk about their experiences and actions we can all take to break the bias. Really fantastic to have everyone with us today. Whether you're being really deliberate or unconscious, biases do make it really difficult for women to move ahead. So in the next 45 minutes, together with some really inspirational guests, I'm hoping that we can um, pass on some of that inspiration to help every single person that's joined us today and leave with an action, leave with something that we can all do differently tomorrow to take action against bias. We're very fortunate today to be joined by Lauren Salata, Chief Marketing Officer at Rico North America. Lauren also sits on the board of the CTA Foundation, where she's making a real difference to the lives of people with disabilities. We're also joined by Noreen Biddleshaw, Head of Marketing for a UK investment bank called Numis, and also founder of Reboot, a community focused on promoting progress on the topic of race and workplace. So really thrilled to have you with us. And of course, Antonia Wade, Chief Marketing Officer of PwC, someone I've seen firsthand uh, really lead from the front uh, when it comes to taking action against the bias. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Really great to have you with us. So let's get going. Um, Let's start off with a question for you, Antonia. I'd love to hear also any thoughts from the audience as as you're answering this. Why does breaking the bias matter to you? Why is it important? So I think we all have been talking for a long time about um, having diverse thoughts um, makes better work product. And that's particularly true, I think, in marketing, although it's true in other areas too. And I think that the bias, what bias means is that it's hard to provide an environment that's inclusive because you are prejudging or predetermining how somebody will think, how somebody will behave, or indeed what their contribution is. And as somebody who has benefited from some phenomenal mentorship and bosses who have not been biased, that's enabled me to be you know, as successful in my career as I am in my home life, as I am with my family. And so I feel like I'm kind of living proof of being able to not be in a biased system, but I do see it around me often and every day. And I think lots of women and others get held back because of a preconceived notion based on appearance versus actual talent. Yeah, yeah, no, that struck, definitely struck a chord with me. Noreen, I know you've been a a really vocal campaigner for equality, particularly against uh, women and ethnic minorities. Have you seen an improvement or is, is discrimination today just taking a different form? How are you seeing it? So I do think progress has been made, um, but people, they just have to genuinely educate themselves and not play lip service to these issues. And, you know, I I see diversity improving in, in different aspects. I think gender diversity has definitely come a long way, you know, but that's because there's mandatory reporting and quotas, you know, et cetera, to meet. And that that's really helped you know, bring it forward. But does that mean there's been changes to the cultural and behavioural elements of it? And I still think there's a way to go. But you look at 
ethnic minorities, for an example, but I feel like that's only really started the last couple of years, mostly because of the Black Lives Matter movement. And I, you know, and I just think there's a stark difference on where ethnic minorities are versus gender. So I think we're definitely there. I think um, thanks to things like environmental social government governance forces, um, millennials now taking on more senior roles, Generation Z coming into the workplace, there's a shift in mentality and that's all progressing things forward. But, you know, but I, I just think we, we, we can't assume things are going at the speed that we would like them. Progress made, but but lots more to do. How, how does that resonate, Lauren, with, with your own experience? Is there more of an open conversation, do you think, in this hybrid world or is it becoming harder to assess biases? What What's your take? Yes, thank you. And great points by both of my co-panelists. I mean, I I think it's a fact in, in corporate America and elsewhere that it's a pretty challenging place for women. And for me in tech companies, I think especially so. And I, when I first became a CMO in 2016, women held 23% of all CMO positions and that number doubled uh, by 2020. However, and this is a, according to a Spencer Stewart uh, CMO tenure study. But when you add the other very important filter to that, which is to Noreen's point, racially ethnic, those numbers drop dramatically from 9% and only growing to 13%. So I, you know, obviously there's movement in those numbers, but it's still very important for, for those of us in leadership roles to, on a daily basis, take action and create and find opportunities to break the bias. So I think, you know, there certainly has been progress made, and but, you know, lots more work to do. And, and what about in this hybrid world? Have you seen it more evident, less evident? What's what I, Yeah, I mean, I, 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 ha- I, I don't think I've fully seen the sort of output of, of the pandemic impacts, but I can say that just from a personal experience that when we, we kind of got into, you know, the hybrid mode and the work from home mode out of necessity. It was really important to me that I create an environment for my team uh, that they felt that they could bring their themselves and their families to work. So, you know, creating a, a sort of microculture for my team around, you know, it's okay if your children are, are in the frame, you know, don't apologize for your roommates, your dogs, your parents, and all those kinds of things. And then actively working to create an environment where, it was easy to bring the best of yourself to work. So I don't think I've seen the the full extent of the, the after effects, right? I think we're still kind of navigating through the early days of hybrid work. Many companies are not even back to work yet. So got it. And um, it'd be really interesting to get your take, Antonia. You've held an, a number of executive roles in different industries, financial services, professional services, tech. It, has, it, has the bias been different industry to industry? What, what's your experience been? Yeah, look, I think it's different industry to industry, and I think it's different organization to organization. And before I wanted to answer that, I just wanted to pick up on something that Lauren said about hybrid working. One thing that I worry about a little bit for uh, women is that often women are less confident about speaking up in meetings or potentially just don't get the space to do it in a way that feels authentic to them. And I think in a virtual environment, it's easier to become sort of somehow ignored. And I worry a little bit about female silence on issues because you are really competing for airtime in a really different way when you're kind of in this type of environment. There's actually quite a lot of opportunities in some ways it should embolden you, but actually I, I don't know that that has been the case. Whereas if you're actually physically in the room, you kind of either make the effort or at least are memorable because you were physically there. I think it's easier to be forgotten in this environment. And that is something that I would sort of 
ask women to really think about um, you know how are they showing up how are they preparing and being in the in the room if you will particularly in a virtual environment to go back to your question though I, I think that I think that it does change depending on the environment because it depends on really the cultural values of what is appreciated uh, in the organization that you're in and sometimes those cultures and values are geared towards a kind of more male style of leadership or representation. I also think that the way in which performance is managed and thought about also can really affect how people, how sharp elbowed people are to be in a conversation or be seen in certain roles. So yes, it is different. And, you know, whilst you would hope that environments that, you know, you would hope that, for example, a tech environment, which tends to have a younger generation might be better, it, it isn't always the case. And it's interesting, actually, one of the, the tech firms that I work for, we actually did a study asking people to sort of just give us top of mind if they thought about a business person. And a white man still came first and an ethnic minority woman still came last. And, you know, this is really in a group of, you know, 20 somethings where you might have expected the, the mode to have shifted. So I think that it is you can't also make kind of lazy assumptions that just because it's a young workforce in tech, that therefore it is unbiased. And actually some of the least biased organizations that I've been in have been those that you might not have expected. So I think there are always biases in every organization. What you need to do is work out what they are and how do you counteract them or hold people to account or hold a mirror up to them versus assuming that you're in a bias-free environment. I think that we've all realized that that's unlikely. We all hold biases. And, and Noreen, your FS sector through and through, and yes. we hear a lot of stereotypes about females versus males in, in the financial services sector. What, what's your first-hand experience been? Is it as extreme as it feels from the outside? Well, let's give a lay of the land of, you know, UK financial services. It's, it's our biggest export and people in FS are likely to earn 29% more than the average person in the UK. And that's even before bonuses. It's always been seen as a bit of an exclusive club and there's very few role models for ethnic minorities, for females to look up to, to enter the workplace, let alone do well. And that is an issue. And, and actually, that's one of the reasons why we did launch Reboot, because we really wanted to break or really question and put a mirror to everyone and say, look, you know, we're trying to bring these stories to life and you have to understand diversity is not just a fluffy word because the flip side of that is actually quite serious because we're talking about built-in discrimination, etc. So we definitely see it, you know, progress has been made, but I think it's it's the regulation part that's making things different. So yes, people genuinely care, but because we're highly regulated, you know, there's so much reporting and things just get put on the agenda. And then unfortunately, if it's if, if it's not a regulatory requirement, if it, you know, it just doesn't get prioritized. So I think what we found is if, if we really do want to make change, yes, it does come, you know, you need to make those cultural shifts. The tone does have to come from the top, but, you know, we, we also need that some form of regulation to help bring it forward. And I think with financial services, we know the will is there, but I just think the tools just aren't quite there yet. And, you know, and hopefully that's something that Reboot is contributing to as well. Yeah, really interesting point. And I think that until you've lived in the thicker of the financial services sector, you don't see the full pressure of regulatory requirements. And, and often those sorts of things, as you say, end up higher up on the agenda than topics like diversity. Just speaking of stereotypes, would love to hear from, from the audience, anyone that's joined us in a sales and marketing role, uh, would, would love to hear your comments on this. But look, Lauren, from, from your perspective, you know, what are, what are you seeing as some of the most common stereotypes when it comes to women or men in, in sales and marketing roles? 
Yeah, I I mean, I think that the biases and the personas that that both of the other panelists have mentioned, I mean, I think in tech is, you know, similar to financial services, a very male dominated field. And you do see that thinning out of women leadership as you move sort of director and above. Um, so I do think that there's a lot of biases. You know, we talked a minute ago about the maternal bias, the mother bias, the parenting. You know, I just I think that those are very much in play at least in my experience throughout uh, my career in, in technology companies. I remember joining a meeting with a tech vendor, I won't name, name who it is. It was in Scotland and turned up in this Edinburgh to this hotel and there was a room full of about 18 people. They were all white men in their mid-40s wearing ties and never before have I felt so <laughs> so diverse or so different. Lauren, when, when, when have you faced a, a stereotype sort of head on and, and how have you dealt with it? Yeah, I was I was just going to offer that uh, example. And early in my career, again, in, in a tech company, I was uh, one of my peers. Uh, we, we were settling into a meeting and I was the only female in the room and I was more junior. And uh, one of my male peers said, um, OK, Lauren, well, you, why don't you take the notes for the meeting? And um, my boss at the time, who was also a white male, said, actually, no, and I won't name his name, but so-and-so, I'd like you to take the notes today. And that was a really very crystallizing moment for me when I realized that another, you know, my boss and who eventually became a, a mentor to me really kind of stood up for me, right? And, and kind of interrupted that bias, right? Like on the spot. And that moment stuck with me. And I, and I've, and I've tried to repeat those types of interruptions in my own career. And, and, but having that male model, that kind of interruption and handling of the situation and granted, you know, he was the big boss. So, you know, he kind of, you know, it wasn't that hard for him to do, but um, that to me really set my mind on a path uh, for, for the rest of my career of, how could I do that for others and other women, especially in those types of small micro situations that, you know, is where these things happen, right? That's where you make these interruptions and, and change the, the the dialogue and you change the narrative and you change those and break those stereotypes, hopefully, you know, little little bits at a time and they all add up. Yeah, very, very true. I think it's those small, small moments that you can make into into great moments because those, those are the ones that are making the difference. Yeah. And, and I've said to my some of my mentees over the years, don't be so quick to offer to take notes. Yeah, too. Right. So. <laughs> always pick up the whiteboard pen. That's that's what I was uh, <laughs> taught, taught a few decades ago. Yeah. Uh, and Tony, you lead a global team. You know, what, what steps have you taken to to break the bias, improve diversity, inclusion across the teams, not not just in terms of, of gender, but also thinking about different individuals in different geographies? Yeah, so I think there's a few things. I mean, thinking about what your role is, and I really loved your example there, Lauren, in terms of like the leadership example that you're setting. So if you are um, hosting a Q&A, for example, if you go to a woman first, other women are more likely to ask questions. So being mindful about how do you include people into the conversation, making sure that in an appropriate way you do bring somebody in. And I like to do that in an unsurprising way. So, for example, say, I'm going to talk to Alicia, but then, Lauren, I'm really interested in your point of view. So Lauren's got time to think about it rather than feeling like she's been put on the spot. 
being quite thoughtful about what's important to people as individuals. Some people really like to get straight to the task. Some people like to have a more kind of discussion based. So I think it's just good leadership best practice, really leading a global team is, you know, being thoughtful about the position that you're putting other people in. And really our role is to create an environment where people can thrive, right? That's yeah. our job. It's to create that, create the air cover and the safety net so that people can be excellent at what they do. Um, and that feeds through into every interaction that you have with them, whether you're in a global role or a, or you're running a small team in the same office, right? I think that, that that kind of thinking about what example you set, thinking about how you really include people as part of the conversation in a in a way that takes into account their you know personality and their personal likes is something that I think is beholden on all of us. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. So I think. Uh, a lot of us want to do it and it's give, give, as you say having the air cover have you seen material impact it's had on the performance of your teams really creating this fertile ground um antonio for, for diversity what i'm sure my fellow panelists would also have examples of where the out the work has been better um by being able to include people in a more thoughtful way I also think, you know, I've I've done a number of different roles and in my last sort of 10 years, I've done a lot of transformational roles. So taking time to understand why decisions were made in the past, because I have to believe that usually people make good decisions based on the information that they have at the time, right? And so being considerate about that rather than coming in and immediately starting to disrupt things for the sake of disruption, really being thoughtful about how do you get that input, knowing that some people, you know, you could ask them a random question and they'll come up with a hundred things in the moment, whereas some people need more time to kind of really sort of think about a problem differently, but you might then get a very different outcome. So, you know, across all of those, I, for me, as I said at the, the beginning, it's really about inclusivity and less really about how many men, women, whatever do I have in the team, but it's more about creating an inclusive environment where everyone can thrive and bring their best self to work. If I could just add to that, I mean, I think that that is a great example of where as a leader, you have to create that platform and that opportunity, as Antonia was saying, you know, she sort of tees up the next person, right, and, and, and doesn't put them on the spot. I mean, I think there's a lot of different ways too. Um, you can invite people who maybe might not traditionally be part of a cohort for a meeting to give them visibility. They might be more junior people or more, uh, you know, diverse members of the team to just l listen and learn, right, to be able to be in the room. And that's been a really important tactic that I've used to say, OK, let's, you know, let's broaden it out just a little bit so people can start to be in the room and understand how things operate. So they're ready when they have the opportunity. Yeah, I think one of the things that women really do bring and we can kind of group us all together in any sort of way. <laughs> Is we're really good, you know, even when you look at little girls and little boys, like girls are good at unstructured play, right? We're good at dealing with ambiguous and nebulous problems, right? And so, you know, that's where you have to look at how problems are being solved. And if somehow the organization isn't moving forward on an issue, it might just be because they don't have enough unstructured thinkers in the team who are trying to solve that problem. And, and I think the other thing that women tend to be naturally quite good at is connecting as well. And so again, if an organization isn't moving forward with a problem, it's probably because they're not connected in quite the way that they ought to uh, on a series of problems. So I think thinking about the value that it's not just about having you know, someone with a skirt in the room, right? It's actually about, it's about the value of the thought process that you're bringing.
Now, Noreen, what, what advice would you have for leaders? You know, how can um, leaders value and celebrate differences? And I think what both Antonia and Lauren have said here is, I think there's a difference between being a manager and a difference between being a leader. And to really lead is something special. And I feel I've been so lucky throughout my career because if I didn't have those leaders, I don't know what trajectory my career would have taken because I've never had those role models. There's never been anyone that looks like me or sounds like me. And, you know, so they, they've actually played such a positive role. And, and I think even through Reboot, which can, we can talk about, you know, gender and ethnicity, it's um, we need more of those leaders and they have to sponsor us through our careers. They act as mentors, but just to make sure, you know, for example, at State Street, I never had the confidence, but my boss would always say, you know, but you're doing everything right. You're doing a great job, but I can't give you confidence. Confidence. incorrect he gave me that confidence I needed and I broadened my rollout into outside of communications to marketing and now I'm heading up you know communications and marketing at an investment bank and it and if it wasn't for these role models these leaders like I wouldn't have got to where I've had today so I think they play a huge role you know and I, I would definitely say absolutely if being a boss is one thing, but be a leader. And by being a leader, look at those employees and see what they need and how you're going to nurture them. And and I really hope I've taken that baton from them and I'm able to do it for the next generation coming up, you know, and, and nurture that as well. So I think that to me is just that the very, the one important thing. Brilliant. And, and there's a couple of questions coming in from the audience that I'd love to pick up. Lauren, there's this topic that's quite close to my heart of corporate tokenism. And, and we've seen it in, we touched on it briefly already on corporate quotas. How do you think organizations, and, and the question here really is, how would you respond to a woman who says they want the job because they're the best person to do it, not because they fit some kind of diversity quota? Yeah, I mean, you know, that speaks to, I, I can't remember, somebody pointed it out a, a minute ago, the, you know, the awareness is super important. And we have to always um, celebrate, you know, milestones and awareness and, and undo all the things that we do to celebrate diversity in the workplace. But if we don't touch the systems, and, and, I, and I love the uh, biasinterrupters.org does a great job of giving very practical things that we can do, you know, it's, it's in the systems, it's in the performance process, it's in the hiring and recruiting process, it's in the meetings, it's having flexibility like we've talked about, right, as a result of the pandemic. You know, all of these things, we need to go beyond awareness and actually make changes to the systems that we have. And sometimes that looks a little bit different. You can't necessarily change in a sweeping way the systems all at once, but as a leader of my group, you know, I can be sure that I can control, you know, how we look at all of these things and how we engage with funnel building for applicants and how do we, you know, engage conversations. And so I think, you know, it is certainly incumbent upon the leadership to take action and not just go along with the awareness building, because I think awareness building is super important, but you have to take the action with it. And that that's at least how I've managed it in my career. And hopefully, you know, to Noreen's point, constantly paying it forward and thinking about others as a leader and not just as a manager and caring for the people in my organization and and, and outside of my organization, right? In my personal network, people I've, I've used to work with who, you know, I still get phone calls from and, and do my best to help them, you know, in those conversations to say, you know, you should have the confidence because you've you've done all of these things and, you know, maybe help them feel, you know, or uh, develop their fearlessness about, you know, really going for it, um, knowing that, you know, I see perfectly well that they can do it. So, but, you know, really kind of putting energy into it and commitment into it and helping to try to change the systems and affect whatever you can as a leader. 
And Lauren, is there any specific initiative or action that you think if I came back into the, to, to the office tomorrow that I could adopt that, that would really help um, break the bias in, in, in my own day-to-day work, my own thinking? Yeah, I mean, I, I think just interrupting those moments that fall into the stereotypes and just being, you know, slowing down and just being very aware and paying attention and inserting yourself when you can. Really good advice. Um, there's a fantastic question that's come in from the audience. I'll uh, leave you to think about it as I read it out. But the question is, my sense is that marketing has relatively more women in leadership roles than most other CXO positions. Um, and is is there a connection? Do the panel see a connection here with marketing overall as a function being perceived uh, potentially as less strategic to the business than other even more male-dominated roles and functions like finance and and product. So can I take a first stab at that? So I totally agree. We are seen as a support function. Sometimes they just think we're order takers, you know, but I I think what I learned thanks to the then CMO at State Street is it's like, well, then that's, that's for us to make sure we change their minds and that we are strategic partners. And yes, we are female heavy and, and, you know, and I don't like conforming. I like wearing, you know, frilly dresses and I like wearing my big earrings and, you know, and I knew I wasn't taken seriously for a long time, but I just thought, you know, you keep your head down, you do a good job and you you get that buy-in over time but unfortunately we sometimes I feel I'm love 15 down and you know you've got to break all these barriers on the way up but then there comes a point where you do prove yourselves and you do become that strategic partner and you know you are seen as that advisor so I mean yes it is a thing but I also think that you know we can really prove ourselves really quickly. Fantastic. Thanks, Noreen. Antonia, have you had the chance to reflect on that question? I agree with what Noreen said. I mean, you have the op- you have an opportunity to surprise people if they're biased against or they have a specific view of what you're going to be like. So if you turn up to a meeting and you are all about the data, all about the numbers, all about the fierce client insight, all about revenue growth, then that can be quite surprising, whether it's because I'm a marketer or because I'm a woman. It's surprising. And so that's, you know, that then sometimes and really almost jolt the system to in order for you to kind of get a different response, which I think is a really positive thing. I wanted to also just pick up on something Lauren said about kind of structures and targets. I mean, there are, there are lots of different views on this for lots of good reasons. I guess my reflection would be that without targets, we haven't really progressed as far as we ought to. I mean, we've been talking about female equality since the 70s and we're not there. So, you know, I would say that you can be in a diversity target and be the best person for the job right but the reality is there were probably lots of women who were the best people for the job that got overlooked in the past because there wasn't an opportunity to really push themselves forward so look you know I think that there are lots of companies doing really great things without having those targets but equally I do think that you know we've not come probably as far and as fast as we ought to have done to this point I can't believe we're in the 2020s and we're still talking about it and the numbers of percentages at boardroom tables are still what they are particularly given we know from investors that the more women on board, the more likely companies are to perform well, right? We know as marketers that the more creativity, the more, you know, the more revenue you can generate. So it's just, it's surprising that even despite the data, so you've got to think that you need to put a bit of uh, stick with the carrot maybe. And and just on that topic, Antonio, if you, um, all of your team came in tomorrow, what's the one thing that they could do differently? What's the small or big step change or action we can all take to to turn this in from conversation into action 
Well, I mean, it's less for the whole team, but if I think about myself and what I've tried to do in the past is really look to be an advocate with my male peers. So not a PwC, but a previous job. You know, I had to sort of call one of my peers out and I was like, you just can't hear female ambition. You hear something different from me. I hear somebody who is really passionately committed to driving their career forward. And you hear somebody who is trying to achieve a different objective. So I think sometimes you need to you need to put yourself in a bit as a translator into the conversation. Um, so we've talked about holding the mirror up. We've talked about trying to lead by example, but sometimes as well, you have to sort of insert yourself where you see something. There's a, there's a, a bit of a loss of translation happening and make sure that you can really support women who are coming behind you um, as they are building their careers in every way you possibly can, including uh, taking sometimes an advocacy role at important critical milestones in their careers, even if they're not in your own team yeah so if you see it call it out and and course correct look lauren there's a question that's coming from from the audience for you what it's uh, what do you feel is the biggest challenge that women in tech face today and how would you advise overcoming it yeah i mean i think it goes back to a lot of what we're talking about and you know show up with data show up with you know, st studied answers. If you feel that, you know, you have some some form, we all do imposter syndrome, work on that, right? So that you build your confidence. I think that, and, and I don't think we've really mentioned it here yet, but find that sponsor inside the organization that will help you have your name in the discussions when they're talking about succession, when they're talking about promotions, when they're talking about stretch assignments or step up assignments. Um, I think that mentors are also very important. And I'm a big fan of informal mentoring, you know, not having these sort of super structured programs necessarily, um, but, you know, having your own personal board of directors for different types of topics and development that you need and, and to work not just within the functional area, possibly uh, having a mentor outside of that in engineering or finance, you know, and one of the things I also always tell my team, you know, both male and female, but I think this is especially true in marketing and just in general, like really be a business person first, right? You're in an organization and it's all about running the business and what part of what you do every day ties back to the business success. And I think that that orientation, as opposed to, I think, um, Noreen mentioned sort of being a, seen as a support person because you're in marketing. I, I take my marketing hat off, you know, and I say, okay, how does this business run? Can I speak the language of the business? Do I understand what strategy is? And, and immerse yourself in understanding that part of it, which is super important. And then you can come back into your role as a marketer or a finance person or whatever, and, you know, grow from there. I think that that really in some ways levels the conversation because you're now speaking about the business success versus tactics that might need to be done to support the, you know, to support what, what the strategy is. So, you know, go farther, go wider, be a, be a student, always be learning. But I, I think those are things that, you know, just constantly improve yourself and look for ways that you can, you know, have that seat at the table and assume that you should have a seat at the table as well. There's um, something Antonia said earlier that I, I think also resonates with what you're touching on, Lauren, and my um, my son's school, he has dyslexia and they talk about that as his superpower. And just hearing you guys talk, I'm just thinking, well, actually, you're having a bias could be your superpower because that's how you surprise and, and turn up differently. There's a question that's come in. Um, I'll put this um, to you, Noreen. I don't know where the data's come from, but it's suggesting that uh, men will apply for roles even when they meet less than 60% um, of the criteria, whereas women 
on average only apply for roles uh, when they meet much, much more like 80, 90, 100 percent. How can we counteract that bias, Noreen, when it comes to recruiting talent? Yeah, and anecdotally, I think that that is spot on. That's, you know, speaking to all my female friends, that's the case. I know so many talented marketing comms professionals and they're like, oh, this perfect job came up, but I'm just not there yet because of the 20 bullet points, there's two of them I just can't do. And then you've got the guys who probably, you know, they've never done it, but they just have this (laughs) confidence about them. And, you know, and I think there's just so much education there now. And I think, you know, imposter syndrome is so well known, the education is out there. So, I challenge myself now um, because I'm like, well, if he can do it, if he's doing it, actually, I I probably have more experience than them. And I, I just challenge myself. I really push myself. And, you know, and I think over the last five years or so, I've just built a much better network of uh, mentors and, you know, people that are, are counsels to me who who really helped me, who've really pushed me. So, you know, I would suggest others to start doing that now. I probably waited a bit too late in my career to do it. But all of these things have really happened, you know, they've they've happened in a positive way where they challenge me they question me you know and I and I do go for it now and I'm you know and I so I would just say on that just educate yourself understand that it's it's in your head it's not who you are and you just have to really force yourself to go for it and it sounds like being surrounded by the right people to help encourage you along the way uh, and, and Tony have you got a view on on this given your hiring drive and and building out the team yeah, I mean, I think that goes back to the point about having mentors and support networks. And, you know, I really try hard to, when people come to me for advice, to go, but why not? And don't you have adjacent skills to show relevance? And, you know, I think it's kind of interesting because we were talking about structures before, weren't we, in terms of performance management? But I think recruitment is kind of interesting as well, where you're not really recruiting for mindset or mentality. You're you're recruiting for kind of quite a fixed task list. Skills, yeah. the, the way to get the most diverse and interesting team. So, you know, I think part of it is about you providing a good support for the women around you and encouraging them to be bolder and to think differently. But then there's also something beholden on you as a recruiter to challenge yourself to really think about mindset and how you're going through an interview process so that it's not a checklist. It's actually about really trying to understand cultural fit. So, for example, I, the question that I always like to ask in when I'm interviewing candidates is, you know, what environment and what management style brings out the best in you? Because that that gives you a huge amount of insight into and, and actually sometimes it can be that somebody might technically be the right person for the job. But actually the culture is always going to be the most important thing. And if the fit isn't going to be there, then they're probably better off going somewhere where they will get that, that sort of environment that would be better for them. And I'm really clear about giving that type of feedback as well, because I think that's a very important dynamic by which you should choose your employer, your boss and your the company you want to work for. Lauren, fast forward five years from now, um, how different will it be? What, what's your your prediction? Um, we've taken all this action. We've taken some great insights from, from this conversation. Um, International Women's Day is fast approaching. What's your hope or um, vision for, for five years from now? Yeah, I, I am super, super optimistic because I see the next generation, millennials and Gen Z, how they are, you know, what they're about what they what their preferences are, um, how they are fundamentally changing the workplace and our society um, for the better. I think they're very passionate people. I am the parent of a teenager, and I I think the kids are all right. I think they they have a really good point of view relative to uh, these types of topics. And 
and and and much more inclusive I, I see in 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 the world. So I think you know I I'm very optimistic. I think we'll never stop working, and we need to encourage you know all of these things in the next generations to continue to fight the good fight. But I, I'm pretty optimistic that things will improve. You know, I think we're in good hands with the next generation. They're definitely breaking down barriers and in a way that, you know, my generation was was a little later to do, right? Because we were still sort of in these structures that, you know, took took a lot longer to break down and, and move forward. So very, very positive and hopeful about it. I have a 13-year-old girl, so feel the full force of um, the independence, <laughs> but also the awareness of, of bias. Um, what, what about you, Noreen, closing comments on um, what, what will the future look like? Are you seeing us in a, a workplace that's free of bias? So I don't think we will ever be free of bias. I think we always will have them. But I think what we do is we will question them more. And if we do, you know, if, if we have an adversity to something or if we're, you know, if we're against something at least we'll be able to question it question ourselves and then work from it and I think as long as we have those tools I think we'll be in a much better place than we are today and I think my earlier point you know where we're talking about the transformational changes that are happening around you know there's more around social impact there is more around the way Gen Z are thinking and and how you know our generation now we're taking on those more leadership roles I just think because there's been such a shift we're definitely a lot more further down but it still depends on all of us to to keep breaking those biases, questioning everything and challenging things and not just assume but as time goes on, progress is made. That's not always the case. So we, we can't be complacent with that either. Fantastic. And Antonio, you touched on earlier, we've been talking about this for almost four, four decades. How are we going to get there? How long is it going to take for us to be in a, a world and a workplace free, free of bias? What's your view? So I agree that I don't think we'll ever be free of bias, but I think we'll challenge it more. I too feel optimistic, but I think we're further out than five years, if I am really honest. Um, I think there's still quite a lot more progress that needs to be made. You know, this thinning out at leadership, you know, we have lots of young women coming into the workplace and then over time falling off. And I that is a trend that I don't see changing, unfortunately. Um, and so I think that there is still more to be done. Until we change some of these fundamental structures, perhaps we'll not achieve it. Um, I think we should also be mindful that COVID seems to have held women back rather than propelled them forward in a way that perhaps we had wanted. But it might be that it was a moving back in order to take two steps forward. And I think that that's what we're all hoping. So, look, I, I feel very optimistic. I just I, I wish that I felt more optimistic about pace. But as we've all said, I think that that's down to us and and to uh, our male peers who are supporters and believers in trying to break bias and trying to create inclusive cultures and environments. You know, and I really believe in the power of individuals to be able to make a huge amount of change. And so the fact that we have people talking about it, the fact that we have people on panels like this, the fact that we have role models, male and female, I think is, is a really great step forward. I think you're absolutely right, Antonio. I've seen it over uh, firsthand during COVID, you know, having to juggle young children and and work and the impact that's had on particularly females taking the, the, the brunt of it. But is, is there a flip side coming out of it, given this more hybrid workforce and making some of these roles more accessible? And as you say, in a virtual team environment, um, being on a video call, you can more easily, I think, put your hand up if you're willing to and participate in a more direct setting compared to perhaps a, a physical boardroom dynamic. 
Um, one really interesting question, um, and then we'll uh, look to close that's coming, is what, what advice would you give to, we've, we've talked about men and we've talked about some of, some of the st- stereotypes, white, middle-aged male, uh, what, what can they be doing to help break, break the bias and, and break down some of this discrimination, Lauren? It just, you know, I think it's as simple as, you know, read some things and explore the topics. I mean, there's no shortage of information and books, really terrific books. I mean, I, I just think it's a matter of engaging the topic, you know, learning the language and learning, understanding it, learning the language and how to talk about it. But then, you know, you're knowing you're probably going to fumble a little bit in some of the conversations you have, but be, you know, become an ally, figure out how you can become an ally and what that means in your particular area. I think it's incumbent upon all of us to do that. So... Thank you, Lauren. Uh, thanks so much, uh, Noreen, Antonia, Lauren, uh, for sharing your insights so openly and, and for taking this moment to celebrate differences. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Momentum, the global growth consultancy, a female owned business brimming with incredible female talent. We're actively striving to close the gender gap. You can learn more at wearemomentum.com.